If you're part of our community here, you know that we've been going through the Bible uh, book by book, chapter by chapter, reading it and also preaching on what we talk about, what we read in our daily readings. And so if you're new to the church, you're newer to the church, this is what we've been doing and what we're on for about a three-year cycle of just reading through Scripture and uh, diving into it and, and going along chapter by chapter as we read through Scripture. And it's been an amazing journey so far. This is our, our second season. We started with the Gospels and now we're into getting into the, the letters that were written to the different churches after Jesus had left and uh, the church started. We're starting into there. And uh, I hope that in this season, you just allow God to lead you, guide you, to help you to grow and that we don't try to read too far and make too much of what's written, that these are just letters written to churches that had issues, that had challenges. And Paul and other writers that would write to, to them are just saying, listen, here's the gospel. Here's the truth of Jesus. This is what it looks like to follow him. Here's where I think you've erred and where you maybe need to get back on track. And so we're just going to dive into it. We're going to see what applies to us in our current situation and how, uh, how we can see what God wants to do in our community. Now, have you ever known somebody that's just brimming with potential? You've seen them and you're just like, man, they've got, they've got what's needed to accomplish X, Y, Z in either a professional field, personally, whatever. You just know that they've got it. If they stuck with the plan, it's going to be awesome. They're going to be a rock star of whatever they're in, which could be anything. A librarian to an actual rock star. I don't know. But you just know somebody, they've, they've got that it factor, right? But they kind of know it as well. They kind of know they've got that it factor as well. They kind of know that they, they, they've, they've got a future ahead of them. They're, they're doing pretty good. And uh, because of that, because they know they've got some stuff going on, you know, they, they tend to take some side, some shortcuts, right? Because they know this is where I'm going. So I, all the, the grind of the hard work of trying to accomplish it isn't what I need because I know I'm going to get there because I've, I've got it. Well, this is what Paul is dealing with when he, he writes to the church of Corinth. Because Corinth is a city that, uh, it, was, it was a big city and it was, it was full of all sorts of different people, but people who thought they had it all together. It was a city of affluence, a city of, of uh, that had wealth, but it also had people that were wanting to be intellectual and grow. And so when the church formed there, that's what began with the church. Paul had been there. He, Paul, the apostle Paul that we read of in scripture, he went there and he spent about 18 months there, a year and a half, planting a church there in Corinth. And so he got to know them really well, started discipling them, setting up church leadership, which would have been a mixture of Jewish people that were converted out of Judaism into following Jesus, as well as Gentiles in the community that were starting to join the church. And so after about 18 months of being with them, working with them, planting that church and discipling them, he left them to go and do the same in other cities in the Mediterranean. And short, shortly after Paul left, he starts to hear about how they got a little off track, how they started to, their, their confidence in who they were 
started to betray their maturity, their immaturity. They thought of themselves having progressed further in faith than they really had. And this led to a series of issues that began to compound in the church. Now, Paul would write four letters to the church of Corinth. We have in the Bible the second and the fourth letter. We don't have his first or third letter that he wrote. Those weren't canonized into scripture as being the inspired word of God, but his second and fourth were. And in them, he attempts to rein in their behavior in between visits to Corinth as he's traveling throughout and doing a little bit of a circuit in the, in the region. He had diagnosed some issues that needed to be dealt with. Now think of it this way. For, for many of you who are regulars here, you know that, that I've gone on a, a cancer journey and now I'm, I'm uh, in remission and just, just doing my checkups to make sure there's nothing there. But would my doctor have been kind if he had tolerated the cancer cells in my body because he didn't wish to give me bad news? Obviously no, right? Obviously not. Even though the doctor gave me that bad news on my birthday of all days to give me that bad news. Speaking of which, it's my son's birthday, Tristan. Happy birthday. I only, I only sent him out because I, I try, and it's not about my family at all here, but I sent him out only because he is our youth leader here and it works so uh, diligently with our youth. So I wanted to, as one of our key volunteers here working with our students, thank you so much for doing so and happy birthday, blessings on you. Everybody give him a whole bunch of birthday bumps for, for, uh, for growing up and uh, for, for giving so much to our youth. Thank you, Tristan. But just as that doctor, that doctor would have been, it would have been critically bad of that doctor to withhold a cancer diagnosis from me because he didn't want to offend me. How much more a diagnosis of sin in somebody's life? How much more a cancerous cell in our souls that seeks to bring death and not life? How do we lovingly deliver news to someone that, that there's something in their lives that needs to be dealt with without condemning them? Now, here's what we need to carefully understand when we talk about sin in people's lives and having to diagnose and talk about it and, and work it out. There's symptoms and then there's roots. There's symptoms that are on the surface, but there's usually a root cause of something deeper going on. And we need to delve below symptoms to get to root causes. What's really going on? Your behavior and the sin that you commit may be on this level, but what's underneath it that's causing you to think that that's okay? Because that's what needs to be dealt with. Otherwise, it's just a rinse and repeat cycle if you only deal with symptoms. It's like having cough drops for a cough without actually addressing a deeper issue of a cold. You can't really deal with it. There was root causes that had taken a stronghold in the church of Corinth. And this identical root can take hold of our hearts 
in our church today. And that root is this, that in pride, we no longer distinguish between freedom and sin. And we get here by using God's grace as an excuse to continue of life, a life of sin and of rebellion. Tara Lee Cobble says it this way, that freedom in Christ isn't freedom to sin, it is us being empowered by the Holy Spirit to no longer be enslaved to sin. See, as Christians in Corinth, they are using their freedom in Christ to engage in sexual immorality, immoral social constructs, meaning they were having lawsuits against each other, which, which in, the, in the Bible, it, it, it discusses those things and says that we as Christians shouldn't be bringing lawsuits against each other, but we should be able to deal with it maturely between us. That they were having uh, immoral ideas around marriage and singleness and how they work those things out, as well as idolatry, placing created things as the ultimate things in their lives. And we don't have a lot of time to unpack all of that. So we'll just start the way Paul did. And he started with uh, sexual immorality. And as we do so, again, there's an important differentiation that we need to see Paul deal with in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. There's a world of difference between, one, those who don't know Christ, and two, those who know Christ but choose to live in active rebellion. Because those who don't know Christ, Paul says this, he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Again, this is part of the proof that we can say, because some of you, I heard you going, oh, when I said there's four letters that Paul wrote, right? We're reading 1 Corinthians, and he's mentioning here that he wrote them in his letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. So 1 Corinthians is actually letter number two. Does that make sense? So this is how we figure some of this stuff out as, as, well, at least not me, Bible scholars figure some of this stuff out. They read this stuff and go like, oh, that makes sense. There was another letter that he's referencing, right? Sometimes we just gloss right over those things when we read, don't we? Anyways, let's get back into it. He wrote not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of this world. Do you hear that? Paul's saying, don't expect people of this world to follow the ethic of Jesus, God's ethics. Don't expect them to follow that. Don't expect those who don't follow Jesus to follow God's financial ethic because they're not living that way. Don't expect those who don't follow Jesus to live under God's transparent ethic where everything is above board and we don't do things under the table. Don't expect those who don't follow Jesus to live like Jesus is Lord. We have to live in the world that we live in and we have to interact with the people around us and more so we have to have relationships with everybody around us. But if we as Christians hold this standard that everybody we deal with must have the ethics of Jesus, we're constantly going to be condemning them. We're constantly be saying, you don't live up to the standard that you need to live up to, which is not what Paul or Jesus has asked us to do. Because if you have these expectations, 
you're never going to be friends with them. You're never going to live with them the way Jesus did. You will always hold them in judgment. And if we're never friends with those who don't know Jesus, then we're not living in the world as Jesus lived in the world. Because we were all strangers. We were all against Jesus. We were all enemies of him when he came to know us. The constant accusation of Jesus was what? That he was a friend of who? Sinners, tax collectors, and the like. And as a side note, they wanted to spend time with him. They wanted to spend time with him. Again, we're a little off track from where we're really going with the message, but when we look at our lives, do people who don't come to church, who have nothing to do with Jesus, do they look at the lives we lead and go, I wouldn't mind spending a little bit more time with them. There's something about them. They're so life-giving. Every time around them, I feel better about who I am. They just pour into me. They build me up. Is that what others think of us? Is that what they think of me when I'm interacting them on any level? So do you have relationships with those who don't know Jesus? What does that look like? And what are your expectations of them? What do you expect them to behave like? And do they want you to be around? What do you bring to them? Now, before we get to dealing with uh, followers in active rebellion, I want us to talk about this. I want to talk about those who know Christ but are genuinely struggling. Sin is like cancer. I've already talked about that. It never sits still. It's always seeking to spread. And sin is never a minor issue in Scripture. It damages individuals, it damages families, and it damages systemically. Our freedom from it cost Jesus everything. And yet, by God's grace, each of us is set free from sin, healed, and to be learning how to see and live in the world that God created. We never diminish sin. Yet there's an ongoing grace to be set free from it through our, our lives. God's grace through Christ breaks the penalty of sin in our lives. And God's grace through Christ breaks the ongoing power of sin. And one day, God's grace through Christ will forever break the presence of sin in the world. As unbelievers, people who are not following Jesus, they bear the penalty of sin on their lives. And as followers of Jesus, believers trust Jesus entirely born this penalty on the cross on their behalf. Isn't that amazing? There's no penalty of sin on our lives when we're following Jesus because he has paid it all. So there's a world of difference between genuinely struggling, reacting to wounds that affect us for a season that need to be healed while trying to discover how to follow him 
and active rebellion, actively living against the will of God. Because rebellion is knowing what is true, yet choosing to move away from God's direction. When repentance is knowing what is true and moving in God's direction, even if we're doing that degree by degree, even if we're today, I'm failing less than I did tomorrow. And tomorrow, I'm going to fail a little bit less than I did today. Not in my own strength, but in the strength that God gives me. I am not going to give in to sin, the temptation to sin. I'm going to continually allow him to give me the strength I need to live the life he has called me to live. Don't diminish sin, but give grace for the genuine struggle of other believers. Everybody is working through what does it look like to follow Jesus? What does it look like to make him Lord and center of our lives? Each and every one of us does that imperfectly. But each and every one of us should be trying to move closer and closer to Christ. And if you feel stuck right now, if you feel like how you've been living and the way you're living and you feel like it's just a routine that you're just like, I just don't know how to get out of this. I feel like I'm on a, way, a hamster wheel of I do good, I do bad, I do good, I do bad, I do good, I do bad. And you're stuck there and you feel like there's no way off that wheel. Listen to this. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. One, you're not alone. What you're going through, the challenges you're facing, there's so many people in this world that face the same challenge. You are not alone in it. And two, God will be with you. When there's that moment of decision, of temptation, and you, you have the choice to either sin or flee from it, there is a pathway for you out. Trust that God will give you the strength and the power and the way to walk righteously. There is hope. You are not stuck in it. In Christ, you can overcome. Now we get to where the hammer starts to drop a little bit. To those who know Christ but choose to live in active rebellion. See, as a church community, we should never be closed off or use uh, control and manipulation. This pulpit, even though it's acrylic and stainless steel or whatever, and it looks prettier than the old-fashioned ones, this should never be used to bully people into living a certain way. And we, as a community, should never be closed off and so rigid in how we do things that we're just manipulating people into living a certain way. That's not the way of Jesus at all. But we should not be naive either and think that everything is just going to magically be okay. People can rebel. The love of Jesus is absolutely amazing. But our desire to do what we want can be quite strong. 
and the ability to choose the instant gratification of something less than God can be alluring and we can fall into its traps and choose rebellion. When one chooses to live an act of rebellion, we never withhold to love, but with love as our motive, sometimes we have to allow people to hit rock bottom. We have to allow people to reach a point where they've chosen, the route and the path they've chosen meets its ultimate end. In 1 Corinthians 5, 11 to 13, Paul writes this, he says, Now I am writing you to not associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, and by that he means a follower of Jesus, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with, with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Again, how do we look at the world versus how do we regulate the behaviors within a community? It is not those outside, or it is, sorry, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Judging someone is not being God. Okay? We're never God when we're, quote unquote, judging someone, as Paul mentions here. Only God knows the truest of motives and the internal destinations of people. We don't live in that realm. That's not the seat that we sit in when he's talking about judging. What judging is, is from love, having a high view of grace and a clear view of the damage that sin does and not being afraid to call a spade a spade. Remember, again, we're dealing with root causes, not symptoms. The root cause of Corinth wasn't the sexual immorality per se, but the pride underneath it that said, I have freedom in Christ to do whatever because Jesus covers it all. In their immaturity, they thought they could go ahead and do whatever because Jesus covers all sin at the cross. Their pride was so elevated in how they were living out their lives. They needed to humble themselves before God. Judging could be a heartbroken family finally allowing an addict to hit rock bottom, praying that rock bottom will awaken them to their need for sobriety. I know some of you here in the church know that personally. You've walked with people that have hit rock bottom. You've walked with family members that have hit rock bottom before finding recovery. And sometimes as God's family, we allow, we allow those who wish to live in active rebellion to re, be turned over to Satan. And when we turn them over to Satan, that's not a term as far as like we're saying, we're now gonna knock on Satan's door and say, okay, here's, here's one of yours. You know, somehow he snuck into our room, you know, and give him back in that it's, it's somehow that. But we, in turning over to Satan, we say, turning over to the desires of the flesh, turning over to the Lord of what they're following, the edification of self, 
the worship of self and pleasure above all else. We turn them over to the destructive path they're on. Not because we wish for their destruction at all. Not because we want to see them destroyed at all. Not at all. We pray that a dark place will awaken their need of Jesus, of his saving and sanctifying grace. Why? Because in our faith, grace always exists with truth. Grace and truth go together. Grace doesn't nullify truth. And the reality is, active rebellion against God has consequences beyond anything that man can do. Whether it's cognitive dissonance, that's just a, a fancy word for saying this, where we hold two opposing ideas at the same time. And that's a reality a lot of people seem to live in. And it's not as hard as you think. It's not a mental illness. It's not a disease. It's us just thinking, Jesus can be Lord of my life. I can do whatever I want with sin. That's cognitive dissonance. That's saying these things don't, they're not going to collide on a course and one isn't going to win out over the other. We can't hold those two things in our lives and in our minds, our thinking patterns, and think that everything is going to be okay. We have to understand the reality of our situation. So whether it's that, or whether it's just open rebellion, of saying, I know what the standard of God is, and I'm gonna do it anyway. I know this is what he's called me to do. This is call, how he's called all followers of Jesus to live, is to be here, live like this. This is what I'm supposed to do. But I don't care. I'm going to live like this. This is how I feel I want to live my life. That's tough. That's tough. That is not what God has called us to do. And so whether, again, it's cognitive dissonance, whether it's open rebellion, or whether it's immaturity and not understanding what, what following Jesus is supposed to be, or, what under, or immaturity and not understanding what his ethics and his morals really are today, Paul clearly instructs that as a community, we're supposed to call ourselves higher. We're to call ourselves to repentance we're supposed to call ourselves to be a community that abstains from such living. And when some are willingly falling short, we extend grace and truth. We extend grace to say God loves you. God wants something better for you. But the truth is the way you're living is not right with God. You need to figure this out. James 5, 19 to 20 says this, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, if anyone among your brothers has to be released because they're unwilling to, to, to get rid of that dichotomy of thought and bring it into alignment with scripture and God's word, 
They're unwilling to. And if they wander, if any one of your brothers wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. When we, when we have to say, this can't be tolerated, when it has to get to that point where like, this, this can't continue and be okay, when it gets to that point, the goal is never is because we want to live so rigidly in holiness and perfection because none of us can attend. None of us can stay in the room. So we graciously walk this out. Never in Christ are we to judge for division and separation. We're not supposed to do that. We, as Paul would write in his, in his in 2 Corinthians, or the fourth letter, we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. Our goal is always to work towards reconciling, showing paths towards healing and wholeness, not destruction. And that path is clearly laid out and judged only by God. Also, to be clear, when we talk about the purging of anyone from the church and, and living this way, I want us just to, be, to walk through. This is kind of, I don't know if we call this housekeeping or just giving you an understanding of, of how we want to work here. It is not anyone's individual right or responsibility to be the gatekeepers of this church. Taking it upon yourself to judge or purge as we've read today. None of you should be looking to put the squeeze on someone to get them out the door so they can get better. Rather, it is something that we, we look at humbly that church leadership should be involved in to address as needed. And it is a most heartbreaking work to do to have to say to someone, listen, you need to get right. And without getting right, how you live within this community is going to be limited. That's a heartbreaking thing to have to talk to someone about. So we don't do it flippantly. We don't do it lightly. But we do take sin seriously. We do take how we walk through these, these things seriously. But know that we, you don't have to be gatekeepers. You don't have to be gatekeepers saying, well, you, you better not come unless you're going to get things right. Or I heard you're living this way. You know you shouldn't be coming on Sunday if you're going to be living that way. Because that's just not going to be healthy. That's not going to be healthy for us at all. We allow the Holy Spirit to lead us. We allow the Holy Spirit to guide us. We allow the Holy Spirit to bring conviction, to bring healing, to bring the strength we need to move past the sins that can so easily entangle us. It reminded me of when Jesus was confronted by men dragging a woman who was caught in the act of adultery. And no matter the situation, what it looked like and how it was only the woman that was there that was caught and how she was ready to be stoned for those actions and not the man that she was caught in adultery. No matter those, those extenuating circumstances, those, that's another question for another day. But there she is, 
caught guilty of adultery. And at that time point, that, that was a death sentence. There she is. They have stones in hand saying, Jesus, this is what we need to do. And what does he do? He bends down. He writes in the sand. No idea what he wrote. But he says, he who is without sin cast the first stone. What do they do? They all, one by one, drop their stones and walk away. Jesus turns to her and says, where are your accusers? And she says, they're gone. And he says, then neither do I accuse you. But then what does he say? Go and sin no more. Jesus' heart is never to separate, to judge to the point of, of like there's no second chance and there's no coming back from this. His heart is always for reconciliation and always for us living rightly with him. So we don't pick up stones. We don't pick up stones here. We pick up broken hearts. We pick up broken lives. And we start trying to piece them back together with Jesus. And in the event, when doing so, someone says, no, I don't care. I'm just going to do this anyway. That's when we have to take steps back. That's when we have to start leaving people to their own, their own destruction, as heartbreaking as that is. So can there be times when lines need to be drawn? Yes. Yes, there is. Do we look to do so haphazardly? Never. Never. Humbly, yet imperfectly, we're going to strive to hold the tension of grace and truth. So today, no matter the situation that you are in, whether you find yourself this morning desperately needing to hold on to that grace, desperately needing to, to claim that grace and say, God, I know, I know that I've let you down. I know that I need to hold on to that grace for today. Or whether the truth of today's message has confronted you and the sin in your life that you maybe have been too comfortable with. The invitation on both sides is always to step deeper into Christ. Step deeper into who he is today. Rely fully on him for the strength to overcome and to leave behind the sin that so easily entangles. These Corinthian letters, and I hope that you're reading along with us as we go through them and keep going through the New Testament. These Corinthian letters are amazing in their ability to speak to our current reality as a society. They highlight how diverse our lives genuinely are from one another. Yet amid such diversity comes a shared single rule in all the churches. 
1 Corinthians 7, 17, it says, let each person lead the life the Lord has assigned to him or her and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Today, you might be single. Live the life that God has called you to. You might be married. It's a couple. It's a family. Live the life that God has called you to. You may be divorced. Live the life that God has called you to. You may struggle with anxiety, with gossip, jealousy, sexual immorality, etc. You may just struggle with things. You may struggle with keeping your finances godly and accurate. Live the life that God has called you to. You may be called to teach, to encourage, to lead or administrate. You may have giftings that God has for you. Lead the life that God has called you to. You may be in a season of awakening, deciding, or in a legacy season of life. Living the life God has called you to differs from others, but it has a single temptation. Don't misuse God's grace as an excuse to continue a life of premeditated sin. Instead, embrace the life change in Christ. We read in 1 Corinthians 6, where it says, In such were some of you, meaning the world lost in its immorality. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You were a sinner. Now you are a saint who struggles with sin on the way to freedom. Be in Christ who he has made you to be. No longer what sin desires to make you to be. Let's pray. God, we just thank you. We thank you so much that you loved us. You loved us in the worst parts of our lives. You loved us when we were at our lowest. And your grace covers a multitude of sins. But God, you love us so much that you don't just leave us in these places. You draw us to you. You actually hide us in you. You empower us through your spirit so that day by day, we can become sanctified. We can grow to be more and more like you in how we live. Your ethic, your morals, your perspective on the world. So God, I pray as a church that we would hold a high view of grace and a high view of truth for our lives personally, but also for this community. That we would seek to reconcile, restore, heal, lift up, bring unity to this body of believers. Before 
before having to remove, before having to separate. And only remove and separate because we absolutely long for that separation to bring back unity, to bring back wholeness, to bring back grace and truth together. So God, we lay our our hearts open to you. May your Holy Spirit convict us, whether in grace or in truth, how we need to live. May your Holy Spirit help us to see others with both grace and truth and to live that out, loving others as best we can putting down stones instead try to lift others towards you God lead us as a community to do so we thank you for your word even the tough parts even the parts that make it awkward for us to figure out how to live in community God we thank you this in your name. Amen.